Dear Lord, thank you for our Sunday school class. Thank you for, um, thank you for this topic. Thank you that we get to take this, these sweeping looks over these enormous books. But we pray, Lord, that you help us to um, get our minds around the structure and the themes so that when we dig in and, and dive deeper, we'll already be set up for uh, greater success so that it might result in uh, godly fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what is the term used to describe the Hebrew canon? Thank you. Tanakh, what are the three categories of the Tanakh? Law, prophets and writings, good. Uh, our, two, our two divisions of prophets? Former ladder. Uh, our two divisions of writings? That's right, pre-exilic, post-exilic, the exile. Okay, here we go. This gets into more recent stuff. Uh, in the Septuagint, what were the original names of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings? Thank you, Tammy. Kingdoms. They were the Book of Kingdoms. So it was first Book of Kingdoms, second, third, fourth. They were just one, two, three, four, like that, and later became First, um, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings. So. Good stuff. All right. Who are the three main characters from Samuel? Samuel, David, Saul. Samuel, Saul, David. Yes. Samuel, Saul, David. Good. Okay. Now we're really getting recent. Last week, there were, or no, this wasn't last week, but there were three notable divisions in Kings. Actually, this was last week, wasn't it? Uh, three notable divisions in Kings. Ooh, kind of broke into, and there are uh, different ways you can go about this, meaning different verbiage. It's the same three main things, but you could describe it in different ways. I'm not that worried about the exact verbiage. But how would you, if you're going to divide kings into three things that happened, kind of in the narrative? There we go. The, the golden age. Oh, torn and exile. Man, Glenda is on point. Good thing. This is why you get two, two verses. So. Who is associated with the Golden Age? Solomon. So this is another way to look at it. So you have Solomon. And then uh, it, in, in the, um, in the uh, Torn was, was what the outline I was showing. However, uh, the more common phrase used for Torn Kingdom is divided kingdom. So you could go Solomon, divided kingdom, and then you have those last days or the exile. So it just that's how the three flow. Golden Age... Things go sideways, so it becomes a divided kingdom, and then the result of all of that bad stuff that happened in the divided king results in exile. And so that's what you have over the course of the entirety of kings. So today, we're looking at another very large book, Isaiah, or as our friends across the pond like to say, Isaiah. Why they can't say it right, I'm not entirely sure, but it's Isaiah, <laughs> as far as we're concerned. Isaiah, the, uh, the title is just uh, Isaiah, which actually means uh, in Hebrew, Yahweh is salvation. And um, let me skip down here to the date for just a minute, because that's real easy. The, um, what is covered, so this is interesting, what is covered in Isaiah, well, let me back that up. He prophesies from 740 to 701 BC. Those are the years that he is prophesying. Now, what he's prophesying about extends well beyond. However, 
he spends whatever this is, 39, 40 years of time prophesying, and that takes place during this era. And we know that it takes place during this era because in uh, his call is documented in Isaiah 6.1 where it says specifically in the year that King Uzziah died. And so because there are records that show when King Uzziah reigned, you can look at that and go, oh, well, Isaiah is saying when King Uzziah died and then the Lord started to reveal these things to him. So these dates are, are pretty solid here. Now this is um, interesting right up here as far as authorship there is some controversy, some, some controversy, some dispute. I'll move over to this side. Um, is the chapter 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Between those two is a major division, a major division. So there is not only a shift in like tone or whatever, but everything that is spoken of prophetically takes place much later, like almost 100, around 150 years later, the events of chapters 40 to 66. So this space between chapter 39 and chapter 40, in a sense, has caused some people to say, okay, how confident are we that Isaiah authored that kind of that second half of the book? There's no one really that questions that Isaiah authored the, the first 39 chapters. There are some that more recently question whether or not he wrote the second. So the theory being that because there's a verse that talks kind of about those that were disciples of Isaiah in a sense, and, you know, is it possible that generationally after Isaiah, those are the, the prophets that ended up kind of in the spirit of Isaiah, so to speak, wrote... Uh, things that are consistent with Isaiah, and, but really they're the ones that authored this stuff in later generations and stuff like that. But let me give you four reasons. Is your hand raised or is that the Holy Spirit? Okay, okay, okay. It's a Holy Spirit hand raised. Hold on, hold on. We got to get you on record. Isaiah was, Isaiah was primarily a prophet for Judah. Yes. Okay. Correct. The Northern Kingdom. That is actually, yes. And we are going to look at that, to not specifically that fact, but yes, that's a good point right there. Um, of the Northern King, of the Southern Kingdom, Judah. So, um, as it relates, so here are four reasons why I'm going to give you that I actually believe that this is also, that Isaiah authored really the entire thing. The first of the four reasons is that all 15 books of the latter prophets, and we're going to go into the former and latter thing here again in just a minute, but all 15 of the books by the latter prophets begin, in fact, uh, does anyone have Isaiah 1 up? Real, uh, I didn't write it up there, but somebody just have it real fast by chance. Okay, Diana has it. Um, can you take that to her? Read, read uh, Isaiah 1-1, uh, the very first verse. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Good. Well, yeah, which that's a good point. Uh, fair warning to anyone that gets to read any of the scriptures, you could get some fun names. So, 
if I would have looked ahead, I absolutely would have assigned Steven the most difficult one just because that would have been fun. But um, in any case, in what Diana just read there, we have right in verse one, we have the declaration of Isaiah is the one basically authoring that this is the vision that he received. And in all 15 books of the latter prophets, there is a heading like that that declares the prophet's name. Nowhere inside of the book of Isaiah does that happen again. There's not another heading somewhere, whether it's between, you know, at the beginning of chapter 40 uh, or anywhere else in Isaiah that gives that heading. So uh, uh, basically that heading stands for the entirety of the book of Isaiah. Second is that um, outside of one, what what one author uh, called, quote, an insignificant Jewish medieval interpreter, Isaiah's authorship was ne- has not been questioned for 25 centuries. Now, personally, I don't think that's the strongest argument, that just because nobody said so, it must be true. But we're talking about 25 centuries of biblical scholars that never brought it into question other than one guy. Um, so that's one factor. A third one is that New Testament writers quote numerous parts of Isaiah. So as you're reading the New Testament, and they quote different parts all over the book of Isaiah, they always credit it to Isaiah. You know, the, you know according to Isaiah. They don't, even if they're quoting out of these, this later portion here. And then the fourth reason uh, to believe that Isaiah is the author of the second half as well as the first half of the whole thing is that the Qumran scrolls, the, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, did not show any kind of literary break where the, claim, where the critics claimed there was one. So the, the, the scrolls that we have, there is old, physically in, uh, dated, that we have in our possession, um, don't have any kind of literary, physical indicator that there's any break whatsoever here in the writing. So there's really no sound reason um, other than it seems amazing that what Isaiah is doing in this first half and what he says about the second half and that, of course, comes to pass is just miraculous, of course, and inspired. So uh, that's amazing stuff. All right, so I talked last week about the former versus latter, and we're going to do that again because I focused last time on the former, and we're gonna, I want to focus a little bit more on the latter. So the goal here of this whole class, I, I mentioned it in, that, in, in the opening prayer there, is there's no conceivable way. This is an enormous book, 66 chapters. And I could just throw the, the structure up there, but I, what I'm hoping is that you leave here understanding threads and concepts so that before you even read the first verse of the book, you already have a certain paradigm, certain construct in your head so that you're like, oh, I have a sense of the setting or what's happening so that you can then interpret the, um, uh, the book through, the, the, through a better lens, a, a more correct lens. And so with that in mind, I think it's helpful to to understand, again, this idea of the difference between the former and the latter. So I put this up here again. I had this up here last week. Um, and this is my, you know, I don't know if you want to say play on words. There's a little bit of, so uh, the former ones, which is more of a narrative function, in the former ones, we see that the prophets are declaring 
a conviction, you know, the, what, ideally what's happening is that there is a conviction of the heart so that it will lead to them repenting. But in the latter prophets, what we see is a conviction in a different sense. Yeah, of course, they're, you know, ideally they would repent, but they don't. So really it's a conviction uh, like gavel-type conviction of you're guilty and judgment is coming. And so what we have in the latter prophets is what they're, uh, they're referred to in another way, which is the writing prophets. So former and latter, but they're, uh, the latter are also referred to as the writing prophets. So in my mind, I go, well, if they're the writing prophets, I guess in a sense, kind of reverse engineer this a little bit, is you could almost call these the doing prophets because the, the, uh, the former prophets are those ones where we see this narrative carried out and we're reading about what they're doing. Then they did this, then they went there, then they proclaimed um, uh, you know, that people should repent. And, and, and so we have Joshua and how he's exercising victory in a military way, but yet he falls as a former prophet. So, but he's doing, he's a man of action. But when you think of the latter prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, these are your writing prophets, and um, that's why we have these really long books of the writing prophets. You don't have a lot written down by the former prophets. They're trying to drive people to repentance. The latter prophets are writing all these things down. And the other way to look at it, too, is that just like in your job, if you're writing something down, that like makes it true, right? I mean, your boss can tell you one thing, like, hey, knock it off. Hey, I told you again to knock it off. Hey, you know, show up on time, whatever it is. But as soon as they write it down, like, okay, you know, maybe you have a workstation file or some kind of a thing like, hey, by the way, here's your official thing. Don't be late. Now everything changed, right? Like, whoa, you just wrote that down, <laughs> you know. And so in, there's a similar sense here where God used the former prophets to say, knock it off, knock it off, knock it off, repent, repent, repent. And then it gets to the point that he pulls out the paperwork and the latter prophets are writing it down. And, he, and God tells the latter prophets, write this down. It's, going, it's, it's being documented. We're putting this on paper. And so let's look at that principle. Um, Isaiah 8, 1 and 2. Linda. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher Shalil Hasbaz, Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberichah, to attest for me. Yep, and then skip down to verses 16 and 17, same chapter. Bind up the testimony, sealing the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Okay, so what we have here is we have the Lord telling Isaiah, write it down. He's telling him, have a witness. And he's saying, bind it up, hit save, right? I mean, this is, this is going to happen. Put it down. Uh, Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may be in the time to come as a witness forever. So now it's even, it's being inscribed on a scroll for future generations so that later 
when they wonder what happened, it's going to serve as a witness about, about what's going on. So now we're going into Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is also a latter prophet. Go ahead, Jasmine. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. All right, and then Dennis, uh, Jeremiah 36, verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Jos- Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to, uh, to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from that day I spoke to you, from the days of Jos- Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone, everyone, that one, that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Okay, so again, we have documentation. Again, specific about this is what's going to happen against Israel. And in this, um, uh, uh, along these lines, then here's a quote that I think is helpful from Stephen Dempster. Quote, at this point, the narrative storyline of the Hebrew Bible is suspended. So this is where that, that framework that I'm talking about. When we get from uh, kings that we looked at last week, the end of the former prophets, and we're beginning into the latter prophets. That's what he's talking about when he says, at this point, the narrative storyline of the Hebrew Bible is suspended. The narrative prose of the former prophets shifts to the more poetic discourse of the latter prophets, which is continued in the poetry of the writings. The storyline will not resume until the book of Daniel in the latter portion of the writings, where it will continue to the end of the Tanakh. Close quote. So, this is what I'm saying, is that understanding the roles of the prophets here and uh, the order of the Tanakh helps you to grasp the depth before you read a single word. So, in other words, what, what I think is helpful here is, is to realize that by knowing the roles of the latter prophets versus the former prophets, you can gra- get more of a 3D view versus a two-dimensional view. Because the latter prophets, just because it says latter, does not mean necessarily that they came after the former. It's not a chronological thing. Yes, the word latter is after, but means after. But the latter portion of that means that the prophets that, are, that come after in the Tanakh are after because the, the, the Lord wanted the former ones to lay the groundwork in the narrative sense so that the latter ones could come behind them and write down the judgment that's going to take place. So you see how it's not, you don't want to just read your Bible and say, okay, you know, I read through Kings, you know, if you're reading it in the order of the original Hebrew canon. I read through Kings, now I'm going into Isaiah, which means the events of Kings ended and the, and the events of Isaiah are beginning. That's not actually it. They're actually over the top of each other. Or to use a, a, uh, an old reference, if you had an overhead projector, you know, you take the transparency and you lay the second transparency over the top. Or if you're more technologically minded today, if you have a shape file, <laughs> you take a second shape file and you lay it over the top. That's the way in, on the internet that they do it where you have these layers and all of a sudden you have a different perspective when you add that second layer. And the second layer are the latter prophets. They're the ones that are writing these things down. Um, 
Okay, so with that in mind, this is what we want to see, is that the book of Isaiah is laying over the top of the narrative history provided by kings. So if you look, take your, um, your spreadsheet, that handout that I gave you, and look at this side here. All right. And uh, it lists, this is the divided kingdom. So I, I had this on our handout last week as well because this essentially was the center of our, remember, it went Solomon, the divided kingdom, and then exile. And so this, this starts right after Solomon and it shows the entire divided kingdom and ends with each of the tribes in exile. And so, just to give you a sense of, of that overlap, if you find Isaiah right here, as far as the prophet, notice where he is. He's in the middle of this. He's not, you know, if you were going to think of this chronologically, then that would mean King's ends here, and then Isaiah would somehow happen, you know, after. But that's not what takes place. Isaiah happens during the divided kingdoms. And we already uh, looked at the fact that uh, his calling started when King, Uzziah in, uh, um, when King Uzziah died. So just look at the list over here on the left side in that left column under the tribe of Judah. And you go, okay, well, King Uzziah reigned from 767 to 740. And if we know from Isaiah's writing that it's when he died, well, he died at 740. Well, we look up here at our board and we see his ministry or his prof prophecy, his calling to be a prophet, started at 740 and continued through 701. So, hoping to make this a little visual for you. So, if he prophesied from 740 to 701, then you can just follow that box down. And you can see, well, actually, the time that he prophesied was only through Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Right? Is everyone following? That's the only... Uh, those were the people that reigned during the time that he was actually prophesying. And yet, what he prophesies continues on this page and beyond, well beyond, which is where you get this break and people going, well, wait a minute, if he died up here, then are we sure that he's the one that authored all of these things that actually take place later in history? And of course, I would suggest absolutely that that is uh, what happens. Um, okay, so just to put this stuff in perspective as well, so the last king that is reigning during Isaiah's time was Hezekiah. And do you remember what major event happened in Hezekiah's life? And Isaiah writes about it in his, in his book, you know, so this would be actually during his life. Um, and so you have Hezekiah, which is straight across from the exile of, the, um, of Israel, of the northern kingdom. And Hezekiah... Was, was about to die. So it looked like basically it was all going to end, both tribes about the same time. But Hezekiah gets a pass. God says, okay, fine, you're going to live longer. He extends his life. But do you remember what Hezekiah did after that? Jamie? You, showed, yeah, I think you have the microphone, don't you? Yeah, I do. Okay. He showed off the, uh, the uh, treasures. Uh, he show, and who did he show? He, to the king of Assyria. No, uh, the well, other one. Babylon. Babylon. Right. He showed the, they showed up. He kind of basically makes a, a, you know, 
nice-nice with the Babylonians. Hey, fellas, so this is right after he's received the Lord's blessing. I'm going to extend your life. And he invites the Babylonians in, shows them absolutely everything, right? Gives them the baker's tour of everything that they've got in their stores, all their treasures. And, of course, Isaiah says, Hezekiah, what did you show them? I showed them everything. I withheld nothing. And so he says, Isaiah says, well, whatever you showed them is what they're taking, which, of course, is absolutely everything. (laughs) <laughs> they took inventory. Right. Now, this is, see, this is all kind of interesting when you match these things up. What is really unsettling about Hezekiah, to me anyway, about Hezekiah's response to that judgment that Isaiah proclaimed against Hezekiah? He was satisfied in his own time. Right. He's like, wait a minute, that's going to happen to my later generations? Yeah. Nah. And so that, that is very upsetting. But now, though, what I'm saying is as we think about all these things, and we're doing the kind of the layer thing, both on top, 3D, and linear, so then now you're going, okay, so you have Hezekiah here, who's, this is all happening right here at the, at the end, so he gets spared from the Rabshakeh, just, to, just so this is the, the Assyria comes over, and they're going to wipe out uh, the tribe of Judah as well, and that's where some really yucky stuff happens, you know, he's standing on the wall, and his own people are dying, and it looks like. And then God intervenes, sends him home. His own sons kill the Assyrian king. It's like, it looks like, oh, hey, we're spared. So then we have this whole exchange that, that we just described. And then it's, it's foretold by Isaiah, okay, well, everything that you showed is going to be taken in future generations. Well, that future generation is down here. So you have Isaiah prophesying right here with Hezekiah face-to-face what is going to happen approximately 150 years later and of course does happen by the Babylonians, the very same people that were their neighbors and that were, you know, it seemed like a great idea at the time, right? <laughs> and uh, only ends in, in wiping them out entirely. So we see that going on in Isaiah. Um, okay, so look now, flip your, pay, your hand over, over, your handout over, and look at these, uh, the Bible Project graphic. And so, again, just kind of referencing the, the same thing, you can probably see the little pink highlight I put on mine. So all of these events, everything that you see, and the corresponding chapters in your handout that lead to right here where I've highlighted Hezekiah's fall. That's what it says on that, the bottom of that center box, chapter 39. So here we are, chapter 39. Hezekiah's fall. So up to this point, you have Isaiah there physically. He is present. He is saying all these things to them, and he is about what is taking place right there. And he, we, have Hezek, uh, we have Isaiah telling Hezekiah, okay, everything that you show them is going to uh, be taken away. And so then, from this point on, you have no, no Isaiah. That's why they have in their graphic here that they've created, if you look at the top right where it says, whose voice are we hearing? And then it, it brings in the possibility that, um, that, the, that the second half is the voice of Isaiah and his prophetic disciples, and they give some references that kind of talk about disciples that he had. But for the reasons I began the class with, I, you know, they presented that as an option. I don't think that that's the case. I think what we have is... Um, 
a Holy Spirit-inspired prophet saying this is, these are the things that are going to happen and that those are the very things that happen later in the book as well. Um, also, uh, looking at that, that uh, Bible Project graphic there, I wanted to point out, um, do you remember uh, how the book of Kings ends? So uh, we, we looked at the divisions. Okay, we had the golden era, we had the divided kingdom, and then exile, but then we read the last, I think, four verses of Kings, and how did it end? The very last part. Go ahead, Jamie. The last king was welcomed to the table. Right, right. So what, what we saw is instead of being wiped out, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, you mean you're letting this guy, this king of Israel, who is a descendant of David, by the way, at the king's table, and then close scene. And so you have, at the very end, this hope of, well, what, what will come of that in the future? And I gave you the example last week of the survivor tree from the, if that helps remember, the 9-11 memorial. They had this survivor tree that had withstood and was all burned and charred, but actually was still alive, and they took it and nurtured it and replanted it and put it right back where it was. And that same thing... We, uh, we see now where there's, that, so where there's a chance here, there's a, there's a potential that exists with, uh, with the end of Kings. And in the book of Isaiah, you have the same thing over and over again. It talks about the stump of Jesse. And so basically, in the book of Isaiah, uh, you see in a narrative sense in the book of Kings that the tree is chopped down with the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel. Then you see basically it's destroyed even further by the exile of Babylon, by Babylon of the remainder of the southern tribe of Israel, of Judah. And yet there continues to be a chance and there continues to be a remnant. There continues to be a future that God is going to... Um, uh, that God is going to fulfill his promises. So, with that, okay, good. Let me, let's look at the overarching kind of themes here. You guys see? Um, so over, the overarching themes and structure of the book of Isaiah. Um, I, this is really interesting that, uh, the church has had a special relationship with Isaiah, and the early church, so in other words, immediately after the apostles, so the, the real early church, referred affectionately to it as the fifth gospel. And this is another uh, thing that I know was brought out in uh, one of the classes that Nick and I have taken uh, where on... Um, hermeneutics on, on interpreting the scripture is that the church fathers developed their hermeneutic. They developed their way of interpreting scripture by studying how Jesus and the apostles interpreted and lived out Isaiah. So we see in a narrative way how Jesus and the apostles quoted the book of Isaiah 
and then they examined how did they come up with that interpretation of the book of Isaiah and then copied, in a sense, that system of, of interpretation and of understanding Isaiah to apply that to all of Scripture and say, oh, how did they do that in that way? It, can we replicate that? So um, that shows you the value that the early church certainly put on Isaiah. And of course, they were the reason that they did that regarding Isaiah is because it appears that Jesus and the apostles put such a high value on the book of Isaiah that they spoke about it frequently and they lived it out. So that's why. Um, the book is so large, there, the, there of course is so much in it that you could divide it a number of ways. I can tell you that there are many different ways to, to kind of slice it and, and divide it up. I'm trying to give you something, hopefully, that, that will tend to stick in your brain and that I can uh, hit you with with a quiz question that's a, that I can reasonably expect you to answer. So two overarching themes. That, see, that's your hint in the class, you know. Expect to see this on the quiz. Um, two overarching themes throughout all of, uh, for sure in Isaiah and probably throughout, this could probably be said throughout all of the latter prophets, the writing prophets, is that there is a theme of desolation and of restoration, or some people say desolation and consolation. So whatever works for you there. Desol I, I kind of like restoration. Desolation and restoration. And so I even wrote here, so this is, uh, it works out as basically bookends. I love this kind of thing, you know. Um, Pastor Nick has, has brought it up several times, and I, I, I love it too. When you just look at the design, the, the very literary design of books, and we're watching how these things fit together and get in that 3D perspective. And we look at the book of Isaiah, and we can see that on the bookends, so starting from chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, 22, there is both, within this, the very beginning of the book, there is both desolation and restoration. At the very end of the book, the very last two chapters, 63, verse 7, through 66, verse 24, we have both desolation and restoration. The same theme is taking place. I mean, we've talked about that, how even Genesis and Revelation have this like overlap where they, they kind of curl together and we see uh, an earlier form and a, and a fully um, um, developed form of the same thing. And that's what's happening with the book of Isaiah, desolation and res restoration, and then desolation and restoration. And we're going to look up some examples here of that as well. But our outline, then, is we see that it could be broken up into three parts. Chapters 1 through 7, uh, 1 through 37, is it is considered, uh, could be called the book of the king. Chapters 38 to 55, the book of the servant. Chapters 56 to 66, the book of the conqueror. So, let's look at, I, I chose three scriptures to, um, to demonstrate that. And, um, well, all right. I'm going to skip over some people that have verses. I apologize for the sake of time. Um, and I, oh, I also should be giving credit. This, this, from a guy named, uh, uh, Motyer, yeah, Alec Motyer, uh, J, yeah, Alex, Mo Alex, Alec, 
Alec. Yeah, A-L-E-C. Motyer. This is his, not mine, this, the, this um, breakdown right here. So let's go to whoever has X, uh, Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 6. So this is an example of coming out of this first section, the book of the king. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train on his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who, who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, O is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. One to six. Is that through six? Is that six? Okay. So we have this glorious description of the king. He's referred to as the king of hosts and the train of his robe. And that characterizes this, these verses, uh, chapters 1 through 37. And then a snapshot of the book of the servant, chapter 38 to 55, is Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, again, these are familiar words that we read uh, um, often during, um, uh, during the Resurrection Sunday. And we see this idea of the servant. I realized when I looked at my notes here, I left one word off here. This, so this third section is the book of the anointed conqueror, is the way that Matyer put it, the anointed conqueror of chapters 56 through 60. And so our final uh, portion of scripture here will, uh, to, to illustrate that is Isaiah 66, verses 18 to 24. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and excuse me, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, 
who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to Yahweh on horses and in chariots and in, and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, dromedaries, excuse me, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh. Was it, was it to what? 24. Sorry about that. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says Yahweh. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Okay, so this final section then has this declaration of him as the anointed conqueror, which means in his conquering that there is the desolation and the judgment of the unrighteous and wicked, and, uh, and then the, ultimately that there's going to be an unending Sabbath where we are worshiping our God eternally, righteously, gloriously. So praise God for that. A lot of stuff. Big book. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again, for uh, an opportunity to get uh, some sense, to, get, to give us some hooks to hang on to when we think about uh, the book of Isaiah, when we start to read it, how, it, how it breaks down. And, Lord, thank you that you inspired authors, that you inspired prophets with your word to be able to declare things that would happen over a century in the future. And they did with... Um, ultimate and uh, incredible precision. Lord, we pray for the service that we're about to participate in. Pray that you would be glorified and that we would be submissive to your, uh, to your preaching and bold in our praying and in our singing. In Christ's name, amen.